The sacred divine feminine is creative, abundant, flowing, receiving, and disruptive. And the new energy of money, including cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and even the metaverse, is all these things too. Welcome to The Goddess of Crypto, a weekly show where women who are already in this powerful space will cover these topics simply, so you can relax into knowing that the future of finance is female. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Goddess of Crypto. I have with me the marvelous Elena Bondarenko. She is an attorney and a consultant in strategy, business development, and policy for disruptive technology companies. And if you don't want to know what that means, it means you are in for an exciting ride. Hello. Hi. So happy Thank that you, you for are having here. me. I'm so happy to finally get to talk to you. So we met uh, over a year ago for the first time, and you have been like the moderator, you're my favorite moderator. Whenever I see you at a show and I see you moderating a panel, I know you're going to ask these incredibly deep, intelligent questions and that people are going to really get something out of this experience. Thank you. Is it your, is it your favorite thing to do or? No, it's not. No, it's not. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you like being a, the moderator? You're so good at it. It's a lot of preparation and it's, it's a lot of work. It's very easy to be on a panel. When someone asks you a question, you just give an opinion. But when you have to understand everyone and the subject and then think about how to make it meaningful, it's definitely, it's definitely a lot of work, but I love it. Oh, that's so great. Well, I have to say you're pro- that's probably why you're head and shoulders better than anybody else that I've seen moderating because you do all of that great prep work. So that's beautiful. So I, I said to everybody that you, uh, you do all this business consulting for disruptive technology companies. What does that mean to you, a disruptive technology company? So disruptive technology is anything that is changing the way we live, the way we operate, and most importantly, that is not fully um, regulated because it is new. So um, think about, for example, Uber at some point was a disruptive technology company, right? They came and they fully disrupted the taxi industry. And at first, no one knew, okay, how do we manage this? Uh, they don't have the licenses. Is it same thing with Airbnb? Is it a hotel? Because hotels have to comply with all the safety requirements. Now, if you let people just lease their apartments, um, for short term, without checking or background check, are we doing something? So there's a lot of intersection in the government and policy and regulatory stuff and the innovation at the same time. Um, so the stuff that I work on now is everything from carbon credits and um, resiliency measures that are based on the blockchain, right, that are, that's now providing so much more um so many more possibilities for people to not only invest and be able to monetize the green measures that are um, helping our environment, but because it's on the blockchain, right, it provides this whole nother level of um, security and at the same time being able to tokenize those credits so the investment amounts are much smaller and more available to bigger audience. Um, 
right now a lot of things that are happening, right? Autonomous flying vehicles and how that's going to be regulated and what's going to happen. Uh, there's a lot of um, development that happens now in the space industry as well um, and the satellites. I do a lot of work with Spintech, Crypto, and Web3 companies. So all of it is kind of changing, especially in the field of real estate development and how um, Web3 and Metaverse can change the way real estate is marketed, sold, and even developed. Um, so those are some of the things that I do. Wow. Well, I've had several guests on where we've talked about real estate uh, and, and all the disruptors that are happening in that part of the, the world. Um, I'm curious, though, as to how you got into this. I mean, it sounds like you've kind of written your own ticket as an attorney and as a consultant to be able to play in all of these spaces. But how do you acquire the knowledge that allows you to, you know, to talk on an expert level about things that sound like they're straight out of the Jetsons, like autonomous flying vehicles? So I was very, very lucky in the way my career progressed in a sense of being able to learn a lot of the things. So I started out as a language and zoning attorney, um, which obviously taught me and gave me great experience in all sorts of regulatory work and um, lobbying. And then um, I transitioned into the public sector and I was working for the Downtown Development Authority of the city of Miami for almost six years. And in that role is where probably within the first year, I started doing a lot of the work specifically in the crypto blockchain um, industries because it is something that started truly coming to Miami and became important. But being part of a governmental entity, I was able to enter the room and be invited to some of the most important discussions on these things, right? Congressional roundtables in D.C. that where we started these conversations back in like 2018, talking about what happens when blockchain is truly implemented in a lot of the industries and how is that going to affect our workforce, our educational system? Now we have artificial intelligence that's coming in and that's even bigger than that. But I sort of being in that role, I was able to meet some of the most brilliant and interesting and successful people, companies, regulators, legislators, and obviously learn the intricacies that would not be um, accessible to me otherwise. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, I want to talk to you about AI more, but first, I feel like, you know, the women who listen to this show or watch this show, I, I feel like every woman who comes on here as a guest is a way shower. You are showing what's possible for them. But what did you do about the fear of, I don't know anything about this and I'm learning about it. It's kind of like, you know, I think the expression is building the plane while flying it. So what did you do about that? Was there any fear around it for you? What did you do to overcome your lack of knowledge in areas that you can't really, you know, study online even? So I think, I mean, I overcome that back, back in the day when, you know, having to move um, at that time from Russia when I was a teenager and come straight to Canada and go to college and help my parents and help my family. And I understood that, that fear is just something that's going to be stopping you. And there is absolutely nothing that comes out of it. So as long as you work as hard as you can and you open up your mind and you try to 
be diligent in learning, right? So sometimes people like to just look at services stuff and kind of be like, okay, I got it. Um, I've always treasured my ability to sit down and really break things down and try to fully understand them before I ever, ever talk about it. Um, and sort of that kind of translated into a lot of things. And as long as, as long as you work hard and as long as you take your time and be curious, right. And forget about, you know, the limitations and like, do I know, no one knows anything about any of this stuff in the beginning. Right. And everyone went through the same process. So it's just being open and yeah. Good. Thank you. Because I think that a lot of us, we have the story that we're here too late. We, you know, don't know enough. It's too late for us. Um, we've missed the opportunity. Uh, I think that's not true that's not ever. That's not the case. And especially, I mean, it was much harder to learn things back in the day, no matter what type of things you're talking about right now, especially in terms of Web3 and crypto, uh, blockchain, YouTube, the fact that we have that resource that you can now literally Google anything and you will have thousands of videos where people explain it to you down to the T. And that's what I always tell everyone. Look, just sit down, take a day or two. You want to learn about crypto wallets. They will be millions of videos. Choose the ones that have the most amount of views and followers. And they will walk you through every process if you need to. And the, the, the beauty about it, you can stop. You can watch it 15 times if you need to. You can go back. You can try. You can go back again. So there's, you know, the sky's the limit. It is very easy to learn today because of the advances in technology that we have. Mm-hmm. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I also think that the idea of, you know, the University of YouTube is basically the University of Life. You know, life teaches us a lot more lessons than we realize, and we can be very deliberate about picking up new information. I always like to, you know, suck up all of the information like a sponge. When I got into crypto in like 2016, 2017, I was learning, learning, learning all the time. And I had very few lessons from my previous, you know, I know a lot of things, but I had very few lessons from those things that could affect crypto. I just knew like, don't buy on margin, for example. That was a good lesson to know come 2020, 2021. That was a really good lesson to know. But um, I feel like a lot of us, you know, we we have stories and they, they stop us. And there's no reason for that to happen. So um, thank you for being that way shower for women. I think that that's really important. The work that you're doing is is so, so important. And you're showing what is possible for the rest of us. So that's really amazing. Thank you. Happy to do. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned AI earlier, and um, I want to hear more about that, like what so chat GPT, but other AI stuff came on my radar, I'm going to say like maybe last fall, but of course I didn't start using any of it until right around the Christmas holidays. And now it's like, you know, five months later or whatever, and I'm about to teach a masterclass on how to do the basics. But the basics are the basics. And that's not really like, there's so much more to be able to do. And there's so many more different networks that are available you know, ChatGPT is the one that most people have heard of, but there's, you know, there's like at least, I don't know, I think I know of about 15 other platforms as well for 
for AI. So, and that's just the text stuff. That's not including all of the, you know, graphic stuff like Mid Journey or Dolly. So um, what has been your experience? What was your, how did you get into it? And, and what do you think? I mean, dealing with everything that's disruptive in this world has kind of been my thing. So that's how I got into it. But what do I think? So um, what happened with the growth and an expansion of specifically generative AI, which was the new thing that just kind of happened all of a sudden and changed lives of so, so many people. And, and we're not even there yet. I mean, in my opinion, we are in, in the time in a similar time in history now um, as when the internet happened, right? When everything that, the way we do things, the way we learn, the way we work is going to change because of the advance in this technology, right? And so GPT yeah. is um, generative pre-trained transformer, right? In the end, it is, um, it is a platform that generates human-like text based on a set of data that it's been taught. That's why it's called pre-trained. Um, so there are incredible opportunities and then incredibly scary, scary things that come out of it. Um, and, and those two polarities, it is very, very important, not only for the governmental entities to develop some kind of um, regulation, some form of rules, right, that will, um, some call it responsible AI, but essentially that will guide and will make sure that there is no um, dangers that come out of it. And at the same time, there is a huge need for our universities, colleges, especially to completely adjust the way we learn. And um, that's scary because we've had, I've had conversations with some of the local colleges here. And so far, the only thing that they have been thinking about is how do we check if the students are cheating? And that should not be the focus. The focus should be how do we teach students to use this information in a way that is going to make them perform better because it is going to be, so you can't cut it off. And there's no point of doing that, right? I mean, at some point we had to go to the library and sit in front of 10 books and spend you know two weeks to do something that we could Google today, right? So now we are at this different stage where even Googling and compiling information okay, the system can do it for you, but then we need to start teaching them how to do it properly, how to do it efficiently, and how to be able to then use that information in a way that is more productive for them. Let me ask you a question, because this is bringing up uh, all kinds of questions in my head. I hadn't even thought about the university applications or the school applications. And yes, it makes perfect sense that they're going to like, you know, how can we stop cheating? But I mean, that is a question for today, not a question for tomorrow. It might not even be a question for five minutes from now because it, it is going to become ubiquitous. But what happens to learning itself? Like when I was a child, and I'm sure when you were a child, there were certain things, you know, that's the idea of like the teacher making you show your math. Why does the teacher make you show your math? So that you can show that you understood the process by which you got to the thing. And that process isn't just so you can learn your multiplication or you can learn your addition or subtraction. It's so that you can learn how to do logical processes in the world. Every time you learn a system, you are learning the steps of the system. You're learning the process. You're learning to be able to put systems together. You're learning about how to train your brain, basically. So now they have all of these apps that train your brain. 
And they have shortcuts like AI that can get you to the result in 10 seconds without even trying. So am I going to grow up a well-rounded thinker? Am I going to grow up a, a process thinker? Or am I going to grow up being a complete ignoramus who's capable of, you know, typing a few keys into a keyboard and getting something that looks like I'm brilliant? And am I losing something if that's the case? Or am I simplifying my life? I don't, I thought of all of that while you were talking. So I don't know if you have good answers for that, but. So I think that that's exactly why the educational system has to adjust. And there has to be a lot of thought given to that, right? Because, I mean, think about solving the problems that we had to do in math, right? And all the million different steps, like really, have you ever, ever used it in your life? Like, do we need it today? When you do have, I mean, at some point, and that stuff started right when we didn't have calculators. And then you continue doing that, right? But today, do you need that type of skill, right? Does that cut out some ability of the brain to function? And this is where I think education system comes in because if instead of doing that, it can actually teach you how to not just generate, because I'll tell you, I mean, you use ChatGPT, the stuff that it generates, I mean, it sounds good, but it's never, I have not seen it to be perfect where I didn't want to edit the hell out of it. And, and the point is, when you can teach kids to ask the right questions, to then take the information and properly digest it and make it their own and add their critical thinking to it, which generative AI doesn't have, right? Add, um, add actual human touch to all of that and being able to process that information, that would be helpful, right? And there but there, there need to be ways of how do we now train our brain to think and process it. And maybe our brain is never going to be the same. But a lot of the stuff that we had to do in the past, we will not have. I'll tell you, I'll never forget when. Um, so when I started working as a land use attorney, when I started my summer associate job at a land use firm, and they still had this beautiful library of all of the um, codes, right? So the county, the city, every municipality has all these regulations that have to do with development. And I'm talking books and books and every year things change, right? And so there's new and there's sections and subsections. So I looked at the library and when I started, they taught me, I mean, there's Municode, right? There was an online system where you can look up like the city of Miami code, you just search for whatever you need and, it's, and you find it there and there you go. And you can, you know, cite it, you can do whatever you want with it. And then I just imagined when I was looking at um, one of the founders of the firm, right, and the main partners, how he did things 30 years ago and what research that takes me five minutes today, what it took when you had to go to a library and you couldn't own all these clothes possibly and go through and try to figure that out. And especially in microfilms and the, and the records for the properties, like, just imagine. Yeah. Is it bad that today as zoning lawyers, we don't have to do that? I mean, we never learned. I mean, I still had to go get microfilms in the beginning of my career because not everything was digitized. Our counties, you know, take the time. Yes, yes. Slower, slower. But but essentially, it's kind of, it's very, very similar, right? Something that used to take months takes five minutes. Um, This is going to be even more life-changing. And think about, I'll never forget, we had this visit to uh, Miami-Dade College. Uh, they have this 
beautiful magic studio. So that's um, animation studio. And they were showing us this incredible rooms and machines. And the machine was, they said it was around $2 million that would make the video, the camera, you know, move and like create the certain images for animation. And they haven't even used it really yet because they need a bigger room for that, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, you can do that animation now with a voice. Like, not to the extent, but believe me, two months from now, you will be. Yes. Right? And it's like, what are we going to be teaching those kids? We should be teaching them not how to not use the system, right? but how to use the system and create more and better and faster because it is the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I have similar stories because I was in um, the software in my early 20s. That was my first company. And we had an air-conditioned room that held the hard drives and the air conditioning ran 24-7 to keep the drives cool. And it was um, about an eight by eight room, almost completely filled with a cube of a computer that was almost eight feet. Maybe the computer was six by six by six. Huge thing. It was 100 gigs. And we had paid over $100,000. And now this phone that I'm recording this podcast on with you and whatever you're recording on sit on our desks or hold held in our hands and have three times that much or more technology 10 times that much for, you know, $1,000. And it's crazy, but that's where we've come in 30 years. And now as, as the information doubles so fast, I think they said it's now IBM says it's doubling every 12 hours, all of our information is doubling. So we literally can never get to the end. They say that by the time a freshman is a junior, that 50% of everything that they learned in university is obsolete. So that means to me that higher education suddenly has a completely different reason for existing. And they're going to have to figure that out because otherwise it's better for the kid to stay home and watch YouTube, which is of course the thing that supposedly was so bad for them for so many years. Now all of a sudden they're going to get more information out of that than they ever did, which is, is crazy. And I know that AI has biases. I know that internet has biases. I know that everything is not, like if I, you were talking before about a, you know, there's a thousand videos you could watch and you said, here are some criteria, you know, use a, like who's got the most likes and what videos have been watched the most because they're likely to have the, the most, um, you know, value for you. But, but we don't know, like, you know, look at five of them and make a comparison and then like a, assimilate the information for yourself. It's very hard to know, like what's real information and what's, manufactured these days exactly exactly and 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 with generative um ai it is a huge huge concern um because pre-trade generative pre-trade transformer right pre-trained so the data set that is being trained on um is a hundred percent biased right um there are stereotypes that just exist in the data that we have. I mean, walk into a room um, in any type of, you know, finance or fintech related event, and you will see there's five women and a hundred men in that room. And there is your bias in the data. And because uh, generative AI does not have critical thinking, does not have judgment, does not have all of those human attributes, it takes the data as it is, 
And because of its ability to spread that data so widely, because people are now using it to write books, to write news articles, right? It will perpetuate the biases and misinformation in ways that are that have never existed before. Um, whether you're talking about political stuff, or you're talking about gender biases, or you're talking about, I mean, all sorts of things. Um, I will tell you that uh, there are even a couple of studies that said that um, generative AI, when when they asked it about um, comparing um, or they wanted to see how many negative terms it could generate about white men and then people of color and women. And <laughs> the difference was so stark, right? There was so much more information on the negative connotations about women and people of color than white men in the data that it learned, that it was able to talk about <laughs> so many more things, which in the end, when you and me read it, it sounds like it's right, right? Because it's very convincing. And that's kind of another issue with generative AI is its ability to confidently bullshit. When something is written in such a proper way, us as humans, we always think because it's written well, we think it's right. It's kind of of the way the brain operates. And that is very, very dangerous because um, there's absolutely no way to verify the accuracy of the information because, I mean, that information came from the data set. And who knows if the data set, how correct it is, right? Um, Yeah, this goes way, this goes way back. Um, Have you, um, have you ever read Confessions of an Economic Hitman? No. It was written by an ex-CIA agent who basically found his conscience and spent the rest of his life, he's still alive, but he's been trying for years and years to undo the damage. But basically in the 60s, economic models were created that were deliberately flawed. And then those economic models were used by all the top, it was generated by the government. And then those economic models were used in all the top um, schools for economics and they created flawed data, which was then used to uh, to pitch and to get other countries on board with having the U.S. come in and develop um, infrastructure. And then they were told, oh, you're going to get this much money back and it's going to be great for education and it's going to be great for your people. And it wasn't great at all. And then the caused the countries to default on their loans. And that caused the U.S. to say, well, that's OK. You don't even have to pay the money back. But now you have to vote with us in the U.N. And the countries that said no, like notably, I believe the um, the, the guy who was running Chile, uh, the, the leader of Chile said no, the there were three leaders and they all said no and they were all killed under very mysterious circumstances until finally they got a guy who said yes and then they did this to Chile as well. But it was an example, an early example, free AI, of how data could be terribly, terribly manipulated to a very large agenda. And when you read this book, he lays it out in like low-level detail and it's it's scary. It, it's you want not to believe it. The sad thing, of course, is it was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, they, they got death threats before it was even published. And the publisher, you know, like pulled it at the last minute. He had to go find somebody else to publish it because it was such incendiary information. And even though it was on the New York Times bestseller list for a long time, nobody really paid attention. Nobody fixed the models. Nobody tried to fix the situation. And in 20, 
2012, 2011, something like that, they entered the word that Stephen Colbert entered that year. Truthiness became the word of the year for Merriam-Webster. And it was because he invented this word, which at the time we were like, yeah, maybe that makes sense. But now you look at back and 10 years later, the idea of truthiness is like, it's how every system that we have works. We don't understand why something is the way that it is, because there's no, like, oh, it was written down in a book because somebody researched it, because somebody knew it. That used to have value. And now, especially with the proliferation of AI and as you say, you're being very specific, generative AI, that's a very important distinction. It's like, it doesn't even, like, we can't know what's true. So what do we do with that? And I hate everything you said about the gender bias stuff. What do we do with that? How do we fix it? It's, it's something that's, from what I understand, being worked on on many different levels. I know Europe um, is a little bit ahead. Hopefully in the US, the regulations are also being developed. Um, but there have to be frameworks. Like I would say, ideally, um, everything that's generated by generative AI, if there should be a section that actually provides the citations on where information came from, that would be super helpful, right? Um, so that you can actually go ahead and verify if you need to, especially in the journalism and in all those fields, right? And um, so that's one thing, right? Now, can you train the algorithm to not be discriminatory? Can you do that? I don't know, right? Would that be discriminatory in itself? Possibly, right? Um, oh. So it's it's scary. And I hope that before we see any more advances, everyone steps back and actually creates some rules that will help because I mean, and it's not only it's not only biases, ethical concerns, discrimination, right? It also, it polarizes the public discourse, right? Because it confirms the existing beliefs and opinions rather than challenging it. And, and that's why I'm saying like, we need to teach our kids in school how to use generative AI and how to use critical thinking when you read it, when you, when you go and confirm it, how do you verify information? How do you digest that information and make it meaningful and useful? And that, I think, is going to be a huge, huge challenge, but at the same time, something that would be very helpful. When we stop saying, like, oh, you just cheated and you wrote it, but instead, like, okay, go use it, ask the right questions, and then this is how you verify. And I want to see the process of how you verify it. Mm. What do you think we can do as women to help uh, turn that tide because I really hate the idea. You're right. I've been to dozens of parties and events, especially fintech stuff, where you're one of. I'm like, I'm always like, let me meet all the women in the room because that's like my thing. But also, there are not always very many of them. So, what can we do? So, I think I mean one very very important thing that I think we all need to advocate for is so in the actual um, HR industry, so in any industry in hiring, like that's one thing where it really, really comes along. Right now, most companies, big or small, they use some form of AI to kind of siffle through the first set of resumes. And that just 
scans the resumes, and then it has the set of data, right? That, okay, this person needs to be able to perform this, 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 that. And it is the AI system that takes information in the resume, tries to match it and says, oh, it doesn't match, let's go. And because of the biases in the data, of the stereotypes about women, even things like, oh, women, they have families. They're not as flexible in their time. They have kids. They miss more work, right? If you think about it and, and the company uses that system, that women's resumes will be kicked out for a variety of reasons that are based on the biases in the data set, right? So advocating for not using those systems, even though, I mean, it's it, we are very deep into it. But in various selection processes, whether it's credit approvals, like that's been going on for like five years, if not more. Um, you know, university applications, job applications, credit approvals, anything that has to do with evaluating a candidate and allowing them to proceed or not. There either needs to be rules for those systems or, you know, they just should not be done that way. And I think mm-hmm. that would help is why we don't have that many girls in, you know, finance firms because they did not, you know, have a chance to get selected. And a lot of times they learn like, oh, it's anyways, I'm not going to be good at it because I'm not going to be picked and yada, 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 right? And that's kind of how it starts. I mean, it starts in universities, but essentially, as we talk today, I mean, higher education, is that even necessary? Um, I believe in apprenticeships and the future of that as education, as opposed to going to college and getting you know, into a bunch of debt to begin with. So, Oh, that's interesting. That, that takes us back to an older model and a European model. The idea of apprenticing to learn the trade was that's how it used to be for a lot of people um, because they didn't have access to the universities because the universities weren't of their own you know, a profit center and there wasn't one everywhere you went. Um, so that's, and, and I'd never heard that before. So I love that idea that we would, we would return to the idea of learning your, it's your trade. Very, well, there's a very cool company called Multiverse, which the name doesn't have anything to do with, I mean, what they do, it's, I, I, I was wondering <laughs> that, but uh, they're coming here from, from Europe and expanding in the U.S. now. And that's exactly their model. They're working with big corporations and setting up these apprenticeship programs and they bring in the students. So the student from day one is able to now make money and in the end get hired by the company. So they provide the training side of things and the tech side of things in order to maintain that apprenticeship uh, and make it more of an educational experience. And a lot of it is in tech, is in coding, um, which is, you know, a huge field now. And it's super interesting. So instead of, you know, going to college and graduating with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, these kids are making money as they learn. And then they're pretty much guaranteed a job in the end. That's a great idea. I, and it's actually, um, my girlfriend's daughter started off that way. She had her education. She had her university degree, but she went to a huge uh, digital media company and apprenticed with them you know, an internship, right? But it was a three-month internship. And if she made it through the internship, she had a job waiting on the en- at the end. And she went in there, you know, making ugh, no money whatsoever at first. But now she's built up to making a fantastic salary. She's been with the company for five years. She's risen through the ranks. And it's a career for her. It's beautiful. 
Um, but it was that apprenticeship, that that internship that got her that opportunity. So I think that model is really, really great. I can't remember the name of the other generative AI platform, but somebody mentioned one to me the other day and said, this is good because it gives you citations for everything that it, it tells you where it got all of its information. And so I think that may be just a, a single shift in AI that could really help make the difference of, you know, what you're talking about. Um, and then also, I agree with you that like, I don't ever generate something with AI where I, I just use it. I always feel like, uh, you know, it'll get like, if you put the right information in at the top, you'll get like 80% of the voice that you're looking for at the bottom, but then you still want to edit it. But at least I feel like we don't have to create everything from scratch anymore. We don't have to reinvent the wheel and then our time can go to other things. So I think that that's helpful. Is that true for you at the high levels that you're working at? Or is it, would, would it just be for more pedestrian stuff? Definitely. And it, and it is true for everyone. And, and that's the point, being able to learn and understand how to take it and make it better and make it your own and verify information and add critical thinking to it is kind of the most important thing that we all need to work on. And be aware. I mean, I don't think you, you will ever be able to remove biases out of generative AI, but um, being aware of it and addressing it as you get the information is what I think we need to focus on. Because if you remove the bias, you basically add another bias to it. It's not, it's hard. It's it's almost impossible because we have hundreds of years of data and information that is, it is what it is, right? And you want yeah. to erase it. Yeah. So if you were advising a woman, if a woman's listening to this and she's thinking, hey, I want to get into this field, what do you think? Um, like, where's a great place to get started? Do you have any suggestions? Like to do exactly what? Uh, to, if you wanted to learn more about generative AI, to like to develop uh, uh, tools that were maybe going to be better, you know, easier for women to use or um, where women would feel more comfortable going in. It's just if you have any suggestions for how to get started. My my biggest suggestion, and I, I've done that myself a couple of times, and it was actually super fascinating, is sit down one evening, you know, take away the disruptions, open ChatGPT, and pick a topic, like pick something. I mean, maybe you just went to a doctor and you've had a whole bunch of like blood work done, or, or, and you were like, I don't know what exactly that means, and the doctor said it and not explain anything, and you won't ask about that or you have any particular topic or subject you're working on, pour yourself a glass of wine and sit and just keep talking, right? Like, don't just ask a question and be like, oh, that's cool. It's very interesting the way you can interact with the system and then clarify things and dug into things and ask why, why that, why this, why this? That, if you spend like two, three hours having that discussion with ChatGPT just by yourself, First of all, you're going to have fun, I promise, uh, because it is like every, every time I do, I mean, I'm mind blown every time I do that. Every time really? I try to look. And it's like, and you're like, seriously, it is absolutely fascinating. And at the same time, you will get very good understanding of how the system works, because 
in order to use it productively, you really need to understand how it works, what it asks, what you ask, and what happens as a result, right? And the way it analyzes information, because that way you can really truly use it to your advantage and be able to be critical with it and, um, you know, benefit from it as opposed to just trying to cheat. And that's, that's the difference. Well, I love that. Thank you very much. That's a suggestion nobody else has made. Sit down with a glass of wine and your new, your new mind partner, ChatGPT. I love that. Um, So I always love to close out these episodes by asking a very important question. And that is what is one more thing that you would like women to know? It can be on any topic. Honestly, I mean, um, believe, believe in yourself and, um, especially in, I've seen a lot of women over the last, and I don't know, it's kind of like a wave of, I believe time and things, they grow in waves. And, and I've met a lot of old friends lately who are all either getting divorced or thinking to get divorced, right? And like they're in that moment and, and they truly do not believe in themselves and their ability to be okay. Um, they're like, but what am I going to do? But what about the kids? But how am I going to afford to just be on my own? And it is so important. We figure it out. Like, Things work out. We all have the ability. I I'll never forget, you know, when I was going through divorce while in law school and I had to move from Boca to Brickle here, work as a summer associate for a firm with a four-year-old, no family, no money to get babysitters, right? You figure it out and it all works out. And the kids are just as good and believing in yourself and not being scared. Like you just go open, turn on the green light and go and do what it is that you believe in. And I'm, I'm bringing the divorce as just an example, but the point is a lot of times women, they, they don't feel whole on their own, right? They always feel like I'm not enough. I need some kind of support and help. But in the end, every time you turn on that green light and you go and you work hard and you keep your head up, it works out. Ah, oh, I love that. Back, Thank and every you. Time you look back and you were like, why was I so scared? Yeah, yeah. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone, right? Exactly, yes. exactly. And and you discover abilities in yourself that you would never discover otherwise, right? And that end of the comfort zone is what makes us stronger, what makes us extremely powerful, and what makes us be able to achieve things that we wouldn't otherwise. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for sharing so freely. And thank you for educating me about AI bias. I mean, that was new news to me. I think I'm going to pay a lot more attention to that. So thank you again so much for being here today. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode of Goddess of Crypto, please like it review it, comment on it, and most importantly, share it. Share it with all the women in your life. Share it with your mothers, your daughters, your wives, your girlfriends, the people that you want to know that women are learning to surf so that we don't get knocked over when the financial tsunami comes. I will see you next time. 
Every week, transformational wealth coach Hallie Evelyn leads a conversation that helps to ensure that women everywhere can learn to surf the coming tsunami of the new energy of money. You can find her at goddessofcrypto.me. That's goddessofcrypto.me. Be sure to subscribe to Goddess of Crypto on your favorite platform or watch the show on YouTube. And remember, wealth isn't just your privilege, it's your right. Right.